Okay, you should be wrapping it up by now. Keep going. Uh, don't give up if you're on 40, 50, 59, 60, whatever. Keep going. We've never done anything like this before, but I, I think what this is going to this is going to uh, flesh out is um, is the talent that's in this room, the the unique expression of gifts that God has given us. We're going to do this. We want to make sure that everybody has a chance to do this. We want to provide this opportunity to our grounded groups, during our service, online. So make sure that you get your gifts filled out, fill out one of those cards, and turn those in. This entire series, Arise and Build, has been about a project, a building project. And you know that. It's not simply about building a wall. It's about building a community. It's about building people. But what we discovered last week in Nehemiah chapter 3 is that God bets on the underdog. As James and Denise exposed the, the strategy of Nehemiah, he utilized the gifts and the talents of the individuals in his own community to build the wall so that it would become a city again. A city that would be a city on a hill for God's purposes. This morning, we're turning the corner. We're continuing the series. We're now in Nehemiah chapter 4. And Nehemiah, as you know, has been granted permission by the king of Persia to return back to his homeland in 444 B.C. to rebuild the wall on behalf of the people of Israel. Nehemiah begins the project. He has recruited his fellow community members. And now halfway through the project, Nehemiah 4, chapter 4, reveals to us that now at the point of the wall being half of its height, the people had a mind to work. They were carrying on the work of ministry all of a sudden, opposition. It's Murphy's Law, isn't it? I mean, you think of Murphy's Law. If anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. It's true in any project. It's true in relationships. It's true in anything that you might bring about change in your life. Anything you do that's worth doing and continuing to do will hit the halfway point and some level of opposition will appear. Something will happen that has the potential of derailing what God has called you to do. Some change, some big plan, some project. Maybe it's a dating relationship. Maybe it's in the context of a marriage. And you've just set out and all of a sudden you hit a wall. Something's happened. There's some level of opposition. Maybe a bold new endeavor that God has called you to. Maybe a significant change you are about to make in your own personal life. And all of a sudden, opposition. Well, last week was about being an underdog. This week, it's about being an overcomer. We have to learn how to be overcomers because it's inevitable. It doesn't mean that it was a bad idea. It doesn't mean that God wants you to stop. It doesn't mean that you should stop. It means that you need to continue. And what you do is you defeat discouragement by being an overcomer. 
See, in Nehemiah chapter 4, it says that halfway mark has happened. And we read in this chapter, it came about that Sanballat, who's Sanballat? He's the governor of Samaria. So he's a local official. He has power and control over the Sumerian region north of this project. And what he says, it says that he was, they were, the, the, will, the wall was continuing to be rebuilt. He became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of, the, of, the, of his brothers and wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they, are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer a sacrifice? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now, Tobiah, the Ammonite, so that's even further north, another region, another community, jumps in. And he says, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. And Nehemiah turns to prayer, immediately turns to prayer. The minute there's opposition, Nehemiah turns to prayer, oh God, hear our prayers. The opposition gets even more fierce. And we learn in this passage of scripture that it says that now Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians, the Ammonites, and the Ashadites, all of these regions surrounding Jerusalem gather together. And they hear of the walls of Jerusalem going up. And they hear that the breaches begin to be closed. And they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause a disturbance. In fact, they wanted to destroy, annihilate, and kill the project. Knock it down. Completely knock it down discourage and defeat the people of Israel from this project. The people get wind of this and they become very discouraged. So Nehemiah continues to pray and then develops a plan. So there's a project, there's a prayer, and there's a plan. When you hit opposition, you identify the problem, you move into prayer, and you develop a plan. And we find in this passage that his plan is very, very simple. He stations men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the exposed places, stations the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. He arms the workers. It's a battle. When opposition comes, the enemy wants to destroy you. And the only defense we have through prayer is to defend ourselves with armor. You have to realize the battle you're in, you can't do it without armor. So the swords and the spears represent, in a very real way in this context, them fighting against the opposition. They are not going to let them win. They are not going to let them just walk in and take them, take them out. And the same is true in your life. But if you're not prepared, that's what's going to happen. So I want to begin this morning by exposing you to a remarkable, a remarkable project that God put on one man's heart. Joseph Hamilton has been a friend of mine for over 11 years. We met each other through Biola University in a class, and we became great friends as we planted our churches, his in Los Angeles, ours in Palos Verdes, in the beach cities and community, South Bay community together. And we've joined together over the last years to do ministry together. 
and his folks have come and joined with us and we've gone to join with their family in the inner city and around Los Angeles to do many, many ministries. But Joseph, many years ago, had a heart and a desire and a passion like Nehemiah to do something radical in his community that was not being done. And I've invited Joseph, come on up this morning and tell us your story and what happened. Good morning, everybody. This is a little different. I have to go to the right and to the left. Amen. Um, I know I have 10 minutes. This, I, I normally don't do this, but just thinking about having the story of how God uh, brought uh, this ministry of the Martin House, uh, just put some, a little song on my heart, and I just want to sing one verse of this song. And I, I'm not a spontaneous person like this, but when God keeps pushing it, I just want to surrender to it. Um, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. That's really the testimony that I have, the story. I grew up in L.A., to a single parent, my mom, she raised my sister, brother, and I. We were poor. My dad was in and out of prison. He also had several addictions, cocaine, heroin, PCP, and alcohol. I saw him maybe once a year if he was out of prison. And I remember as a little, as a teenager, watching my cousins with my uncles, their dads, take them to the store, to the movies, to the park, and I was longing to have a dad active in my life. Fast forward, I'm pastoring back in the same community that I grew up in literally a hop over the block from where I used to live. And I'm standing in the pulpit on a normal day. I normally had my sermons ready by Wednesday. I would preach them on Thursday to the empty seats as I would envision the congregation sitting there. And at the time of this sermon prep and Godwin man you have an anointed way of playing keys I I, I you know I, I travel a lot and, and do a lot of speaking I don't get a chance to sing for the Lord as much but it's, it's and, I, and I'm back out of town tomorrow but it feels good to be in the house of the Lord um, yeah you can clap for that amen 
and I'm standing alone in the sanctuary and I'm envisioning the faces of the congregation and I'm preaching this message and I preach it alone because usually it gets better the next time I preach it. And while I'm preaching, I hear a voice that sounds very like similar to mine and, I, and, I, and the voice says, ask the question, where are our men? Where are our men? It's a basic question, pretty simple for me at the time because what I thought the question was referring to was we had a skid row ministry and in the ministry we, we had guys who were coming to our church from Skid Row, they were a part of the missions and they were in recovery and they were coming and, and, and at one point we had more men attending our church than we had women and kids and it was, it was wonderful but, but what happened because there wasn't the support, I don't have the background in substance abuse, uh, one by one the guys relapsed and as they relapsed they began disappearing on Sunday and so I thought the question was was regarding these men that were not coming on Sunday. And as I began pondering the question, and it led beyond that moment into a week and another week, the Lord began revealing, because he was impressing upon me the faces of, of men that I grew up with that were in the community, but they, they weren't in, in the church. And so I knew that it was a broader question but it was more specific. Where are the men from the community? Where, where are they? And as I began to research, I found that, you know, because we talk about white flight from the inner city, we don't talk about minority flight, where people who uh, earn enough money leave the inner city. And so there is this chronic void of professional modeling, there's a, and there's a chronic void of strong men. I remember growing up not having any strong men in the community, and I believe that's one of the reasons why the young men would gravitate towards gangs, because there was at least some form of leadership. And I recognized that the problem was Our men were absent from our families. And in pondering the question, I said, well, God, what, what can I do? In researching, I found that guys coming out of the penitentiary, their greatest need is, is housing. Also, guys coming out of recovery, their greatest need is housing. Because as they build their networks and their support systems, if they don't have stable housing, they end up having to move from those support systems. And so I began praying and saying, God, okay, well, they need housing. If, you've, if this is your plan, I know you've got provision. I began having conversations with people, people that were people of influence, and they had resources. And one by one, people that I knew well, 
one by one, they told me that this wasn't something that they could get involved in. It wasn't something that they could support. And literally, I came and I, and I talked to Todd, and I don't even know what made him call me. He called me, and I ended up telling him what was on my heart. And out of all the guys, and I'm talking about pastors included, very influential men, out of all of those guys that I talked to, Todd was the only one who said, you could do it. And he was the only one that said, let me see what we can do as a church. I don't mean to toot your horn, but the Bible does say give credit where credit is due. In the process, the opposition that I faced was the men that I went to of influence were people that I actually looked up to who recognized that this was a problem especially for African-American men because we were 50% of the prison population, even though we're only 12% of the national population. If you divide that up between men and women and kids, we're really talking about 4% of the population making up 50% of jails and prisons. And I figured that they would want to be a part of the solution, but they didn't want to be a part of the solution. And so it's very difficult knowing that I didn't have the resources and I had this, this plan that I was so passionate about because I recognized that this could possibly keep some of those other kids from facing what I faced, little boys and girls longing for a daddy because they're either in prison or addicted. Well, I prayed for a while. And after I prayed, the Lord had me have a conversation with the guy. And God always gives big visions. He doesn't give stuff that you can do on your own. And I talked to a guy who had a $2.1 million piece of property. And I figured that was the place. And I actually got the place. I had the place for about six months or something, but it was just the cost of paying for it was just so much. Uh, and, and the Lord blessed me to have a, uh, a purchase, a, a lease to purchase agreement, and I was able to get out of. In the process, I met a billionaire, and I thought at that point, I said, man, the billionaire asked me to come to, to his, his, his place and talked to me and, and gave me some money, but I, I figured once I had the billionaire, $2.1 million was nothing, but it was still something, and I didn't get that money. At that point, I had four men, preacher, stand up for me, Dr. Robert Dixon, and I love this guy. He's the first man that I had in the program. He's the first one. I had four guys, and he'll tell you, we had to move. And I don't know if you felt the stress of it, but I felt the stress of it. Because we only had three bedrooms in our house, and we had four kids. And so it wasn't, we didn't have room to bring other guys in. But I knew that if it was God's plan, then God had to have provision 
And so I prayed and I prayed. And one day I was driving down Crenshaw, as it would be, and I don't even normally go down that street. I was on Crenshaw, and I passed the house where we currently are, and it was vacant. It had been, it had a sign on there for lease, but the sign had been taken down. And it just happened that the, the house was owned by my former boss. I called my boss, Jackie DuPont Walker. She's pretty influential in L.A. as well. I called her and I said, hey, this is what um, I'm doing and we need a place and I see it's vacant. And her response was, uh, uh, that, uh, I'm going to have to treat this like I treat any other business. I know it's ministry for you, but it's a liability for me. And she said, I can't give you an answer right now. And so we got off the phone and I prayed and I, and I looked at the house and I said, man, this would be a great place. Big old backyard. Good square footage in the home. Two days later, she called me up. She said, I'm going to charge you the same thing that I would charge somebody else. And I'm going to expect you to pay just like I would expect somebody else to pay on time. Or else you're going to be out, Joseph Hamilton, you and your program. And we've been there for four and a half years now. Since then, I didn't tell in the first service, the same boss that was a bit skeptical, old former boss, hired my guys. We just finished renovating 13 of her units in one of her buildings. She has a 91-unit building. We just renovated 13 of those units, and now we're talking about doing another 30 of those units. And it is a blessing to give the guys not just minimum wage, but livable wages, and for them to work. Amen. You can clap for that. And to work in a place where people are not acting like they're doing them a favor, but to work in a place where they're able to get paid for a hard day's work and re uh, reap those financial rewards. So, my story parallels Nehemiah's, and, and the, biggest, the biggest obstacle that I had to overcome was the belief that God would use me to do it, but also the failure of the people near me and close to me to believe in the vision. I'm pretty sure those will be the hardest, the most difficult obstacles that any of us will overcome because you expect those that know you to encourage you. But God was faithful. Now, my, I didn't have as a thought-out plan like we would like to that it's going to be in the message. But I did have a consistent plan. And my consistent plan was trust in the Lord with all my heart Lean not on my own understanding. In all my ways, acknowledge him, and then he would direct my path. And so now we turn down about 60 to 90 men a month because they're trying to get in our program. We have a 97% success rate. Um, I didn't tell them other, the other guys, but two years ago, I was invited to the White House to share the work that we're doing um, and why we are successful. And I think in about three months, we're going to open up another home 
because God, as the song I sang earlier, says he is faithful. Thank you. That's the message of the whole story of Nehemiah, of one individual realizing that if he doesn't do something about it, nothing will get done. And, and really the challenge this morning as we go to communion is what is it that God's calling you to do? Because you could easily say, well, that's Joseph's job and he lives there and he's doing that and that's getting done. And this is a really good story about a wall being built a long time ago. But the real challenge is to be able to connect what God is saying in this passage of Scripture to your own heart. really is. That's what it is all about. It's, it, that's what it's about all, every week. And so the three things you have to do is, number one, identify the opposition. What's the problem? Is it yourself? Is it, an, is it a voice that is saying, you can never do that? You don't have the resources for that. You don't have the ability, the skill, the talent. It's amazing how one comment, one critical comment can derail a vision and bring discouragement. Let me bring it to the swimming pool. I'm on the swim team. My buddy's swimming behind me, normally swims in a, in a faster lane, but moves down to my lane and swims behind me. And I, I don't have my flip turned down very well and it's off centered and I, I double tap the wall to get my balance and push off and and I don't come out of it streamlined and this person saw me do that time and time again over a series of, over a practice and said you're the worst flip turner I've ever seen <laughs> that was seven years ago I still remember that every time I go to flip turn that voice plays in my mind isn't that wild isn't that true of the bigger things of life? And you've got to identify that voice. You have to identify the opposition, the sand ballots that don't want you to succeed in what God is calling you to right now. And the potential in this room, the resources, the education, the talent is overwhelming. You take this to any part of the United States and you wouldn't be able to match it. It's remarkable. We are sitting on a gold mine of potential for what God wants to do. And the challenge is what are we going to do about it? And one guy, Sandballot, had the potential of derailing God's plan. So you've got to ask the question, where's the discouragement in your life? What voice are you hearing? How do you feel like right now you're being discouraged? And the second thing is, you go to prayer. Now, prayer is powerful in this passage. You got to see that. The first prayer he prays is a prayer of demise against his enemies. It's called an imprecatory prayer. There are imprecatory psalms that describe in Psalm 139, Oh, Lord, shouldn't I hate you, hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I be grieved with them? Yes, I do. For my enemies are yours as well, and your enemies are mine. 
David realized that anybody that opposes the plan of God is not only in opposition against him, but also God. And it shows not his hatred towards people, but his passion and jealousy for God. He was so jealous for God and so jealous for God's plan is that he prayed against the enemy and the voice of the enemy. And that's the kind of prayer life we need to have. Praying against that. But the prayer goes even further because that's where it begins in verse 4. He says, return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let their sin be blotted out before them, before you. For they have demoralized the builders. Don't stand against God's plan. You stand and oppose God's plan, God's going to oppose you. That's what Nehemiah is saying in his prayer life. And then he moves to discussing it with God. In, 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 in verse 9, we prayed and we talked about the guard, setting up a guard day and night. And, and so he begins to actually pray through his plan and discusses the details. That's the kind of prayer life Nehemiah moves to. And then finally, it's a prayer of new perspective. Because he says, look it, the people are discouraged, but the Lord who is great and awesome, in verse 14... He's going to fight with you and your brothers and your sisters and your, your daughters and your wives and your houses. He's going to fight with you. In fact, later, a little bit later, it says, our God will fight for us. He will and we will find success in verse 20. New perspective. It's a prayer life that laser focuses the power of God on the problem and destroys it. Because just because you've got a problem doesn't mean you stop. You keep moving forward. It's that kind of a prayer life. And finally, the last thing as we close this morning, this is it. The plan. It's the people's plan. Sanballat's the threat. Nehemiah's got the prayer. And the people have to really buy into the plan. See, prayer is not a substitute for action. Action is the plan. It's do something about it. You've got to do something about it. You've got to decide, I'm not going to let this defeat me, whether it's in my head, I'm starting a new relationship, a new, a, a new ministry, I'm stepping out, I see what needs to be done, I see the needs in my community, I'm going to step out. Somebody's maybe opposing you, You're, a voice inside of you may be opposing you, you begin to pray about that, but you've got to come to the point of plan. And notice what the plan is. We are going to set guards. We're going to station men in the lowest parts, verse 13, and the space behind the wall exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords and their spears and their bows. So here it is. They are armed for battle. There's a battle going on. The enemy does not want to see us rise up to build anything. And yet God is calling us to build, to build powerful ministry for people. That's what he's calling us to do in Los Angeles, in the South Bay, across our nation, in the world. That's what he's calling us to do. So what's your part to play? Get armed. Get armed. Everybody was armed. Half of them were armed, and they, they, they maintained a position 
around the vulnerable parts of the wall. Where's the vulnerable parts in your life? Where's the vulnerable parts of your plan? Where are the places you are most vulnerable to defeat in what you really want to see God do in your life? That's where you put and station your armed individuals. That's where you put people armed. That's where you put thought and plan that's armed against the opposition. The workers, they were armed as well. They carried them by their sides. Even those that carried the rubble in their sacks with one hand had a spear and the rubble in the other. And it says that they went on day and night this way. Totally defeated. They turn around, they're done, verse 10. And yet because of the plan, they come back and they rebuild to accomplish the task. And so here's the questions I want to ask you this morning. And as we close, I want to just tell you a brief story about a friend of mine, John Wagner. John Wagner is a senior vice president of Young Life, one of the senior vice presidents of Young Life. And Young Life Ministries' objective is to introduce Jesus to young people, junior hires, high schoolers around the nation and the world. Hundreds and thousands, over 320, maybe 400,000 kids in any one particular week are being exposed to Jesus in a club somewhere in the world today. Millions through other ways in which they are able to connect people to the gospel in the cities, rural communities all around the world. So we went to a little conference for Los Angeles yesterday in Hollywood and John Wagner from New York City gave the message and told his own life story. A story of growing up in a family, and his father was a phone, a phone repairman in Washington, D.C. But he goes to Urbana as a 19-year-old, and hears John Perkins tell the story about reaching the inner city, and decides that's what God is calling him to do, and yet his father says, no, you need to work for the phone company like I did. And so instead of becoming an intern with this ministry with John Perkins, he goes to Washington, D.C. into the inner city and works the phone business. And guess what? Gets exposed to the inner city every day in the car, in the homes, seeing drug abuse and seeing physical abuse and poverty. He saw it all in the context of his job, which even, it, 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 it actually developed the passion even greater in his heart to the point where he did go into the Young Life ministry and now found, finds himself from D.C. to New York, moving his family, but not without cost. Not without cost, and that's the point of the story. His wife said one day as he came home after working, she was weeping, saying, you know, this is not working for me. Your daughter hates you because you moved her from Washington, D.C. to New York. She has no friends. It's, John, it's got to work for all of us, not just for you. The cost is high. Nine months ago, John lost his wife to cancer. And he's continuing on the ministry even with more passion. I have never seen a speaker communicate a message so clearly that was not a message outside of themselves, but was their message. It came from their own life of how he speaks of his own passion for reaching kids in the inner city with the gospel because that's his message because he's suffered for it, because he's gone through the process. 
And that's what it's going to take. Just because you hit opposition doesn't mean you stop. You keep moving forward, as John did. And then John tells the story of Jesus in Mark chapter 4. And you know the story. Jesus says they're going to the other side. Get in the boat. They get in the boat, and it's halfway. By the way, this is halfway point of rebuilding the wall. It's usually halfway through is when the problems arise. So halfway across the other side, what happens? The storm hits. And then John says to 500 workers, volunteers and staff around Los Angeles that are giving themselves over to young life, giving themselves to these young people, says to them, don't get in the boat unless you believe Jesus has summoned you into it. If he called you into the boat, you're going to get to the other side. If he didn't get call you into the boat, all bets are off. But if Jesus has called you to do something, and you know what it is, whether it's discipling an individual, whether it's staying in a relationship and powering through opposition and going for it, or starting a new ministry, or jumping in and helping somebody else out, or joining in this ministry, this church, Jesus is saying, I want you to do it. Guess what? You will have success. Why? Because it's God's plan, not yours. You're going to do it. That's the story of Nehemiah chapter 4. So here's the questions, and then we're going to have communion. Here they are. Where are you most vulnerable? Where are the vulnerable places in your life right now? Regarding your plan, you may not be able to accomplish because there's a vulnerable place. It's, it's a voice you're hearing or some opposition. Identify it. Number two, where have you given up? See, the people gave up. They walked away. Wall's, wall building's over. If God's not in it, it was over. So where have you given up? Number two, number three, you got to have a new mantra. You just got to have a new mantra because the old one's not working. You got, it's, this, is, this is the act of reach that Karen Leaf talks about in uh, re the retraining of the brain and the, the brain detox work that she does. That you, you can't overcome anxiety or a problem or fear or whatever it else that is toxic in your life until you have an active reach, which is a new mantra that says, God's in this, I know it, and here's how I know it. Or he will bring me success, just like Joshua said. See, see the people knew that. When, when, when the mantra was spoken, guess what? The people go all the way back to Joshua, all the way back to Moses in Exodus 14 when they crossed through and began this whole journey. The very beginning point was Exodus 14, when it all began. They're now hearing that, and these rural farmers and hunters become an army. They become an army for God. You cannot stop them. So what's the new mantra for you? And finally, attack the problem with God's strength. Not, not your own strength, but God's strength. That's what you got to do. And so this morning, we're going to go to communion. So come on up, worship team, and and uh, we're, we're going to have a time of communion, and that's where you're going. You're going to a place where you're getting God's strength. So we're going to go to the communion table where Jesus called us to.
He calls us regularly to go to that communion table where we are offered the opportunity to receive the, the actual body of Christ. I mean, seriously, think about this. That Jesus gave himself and, and it's, it's, it's his own flesh and his blood that has been poured out for us so that when we commune with him in this moment, his life for ours, we gain new strength for life, for ministry, for work. Do you see that? That's what happens at the table. There's an exchange. We go because Jesus is there. He's anointed it. He's commanding us. He wants us to come to his body and his blood to receive it so that we might receive new strength. So, Father, that's what we do right now. We, we pray a blessing over this communion. In the name of Jesus, your flesh and your blood to poured out for us. So we go to it and receive it as you've instructed and receive new power and new strength for the work that you've called us to. In the name of Jesus, amen.